Yarra Libraries acknowledges the Wurundjeri as the traditional owners of the land this podcast was recorded on. Pays tribute to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Yarra and elsewhere, and gives respect to elders past, present and emerging. You're listening to Yarra Libraries podcast. Today, we're very pleased to introduce Sarah Schmidt, author of the Lizzie Borden smash hit novel, See What I Have Done. Last year, See What I Have Done won Fiction Book of the Year at the Australian Book Industry Awards, and won or was shortlisted for a long list of others. And just to make all of us librarians feel like underachievers, Sarah is also the Reading and Literacy Coordinator at a regional public library. Have a listen to Sarah's in-conversation with self-proclaimed big fan of her work, her ex-colleague and our coordinator of community learning and partnerships, Kylie Carlson. This is an edited recording. So welcome everybody. I apologise for the heat, but I think it's actually quite um, fitting. Fitting, yes. Because when I read Sarah's book, and how many of you have read the book? Okay, so I got a really overwhelming, oppressive feeling when I read it. So I think actually... It is setting the summer. It is, and it's setting the scene for what we're going to talk about tonight. So can you all hear me? And we'll get started. So I suppose um, my relationship with Sarah is obviously we work together. So we work together in the process of you writing the book. Did you want to talk to the audience about where you got the idea from? No. <laughs> um, so I started... Um, the question was... Yeah, the question was... How did I start? Idea for the book. Yes, How I did it all start? I'm just buying time, Carly. <laughs> um, so I was living actually in Carlton at the time, uh, just on Cardigan Street. Um, and I was working on another book at the time about uh, the Hollywood blacklist because I really like communists. Uh, who could act? Um, and so I'd been working on this for a while and it wasn't going anywhere. And so I, um, and I was despairing. Uh, and so I thought, oh, look, maybe I'll go down to the secondhand bookstore, which was, and the name escapes me, Book Affair. Um, it's no longer there, but I used to go there all the time. Um, and it's this rambling old place. And um, so I went in there because I thought, oh, there would definitely be books about communists for sure. Anyway, I was in there for two hours and there was absolutely nothing. Um, and so I thought, oh, what a waste of time. Maybe I'll go to the true crime section and see what I can find. And so I went and there was like this uh, on the top shelf, there was a yellow um, spine just standing out. And I think it was about women who kill. I thought, that's the book for me. <laughs> and so I went and I took one off the shelf and behind it was a pamphlet and that fell down on the ground and I picked it up. And it was about the, uh, it was, I can't remember what it was called, but something about Lizzie Borden something something. So it was about the case. And I'd, I'd never heard of her before, but there was a picture on, on the front cover and Kylie, as you know, I do like to talk to myself about myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I heard this voice uh, say there was no more love. And I thought, hmm, that's weird. And I kept, uh, kept reading about this case. And um, I got to the end. Um, and for those of you who are not so familiar with it, um, it's basically uh, Lizzie Borden was accused of axing her father and uh, stepmother to death with, a, with an axe, obviously. Hot August day. And um, she was accused. Um, and there was a huge trial and then she was acquitted and she lived happily ever after with all the money with her sister and that's basically the story um, and uh, and so I got to the end of this pamphlet and I thought it was the most boring thing I'd ever read so I thought oh that's stupid what a waste of a time so I went back home and then that night um, I had a dream 
And sitting at the end of my bed in my dream was Lizzie and she was poking me in the leg and she said, I have something to tell you about my father. He has a lot to answer for. And it felt so real and creepy that I uh, kind of woke up and I thought, oh God, that's so weird. And then I just ignored her. And then um, the next day I had the exact same dream. And I continued to have that dream for seven nights in a row until um, I realised I'm not a stupid woman. I know when there's a, a calling, I guess. And so I just started writing down my dream, hoping that she would go away. Um, and I just heard her in my voice and she just would not let me go. And then, um, yeah, 11 years later, I had a novel. The house that still exists, um, it's a bed and breakfast and you can sleep in Lizzie's, we can sleep in all the rooms, but I slept in Lizzie's bedroom. It was fun. Did you have any dreams that night? I did. Um, I had a lot. I kept, I, I've dreamt about this woman and her family um, not so much this year, but um, for almost 11 years and just all the time. And when I was at the house, it's pretty amazing. They have it set up, um, uh, it's modelled on the crime scene photos. And so it's like you're walking back in time. And it's, I don't know, I was going to say weird people go, but then I went. So maybe I'm weird. Anyway, um, and so, yeah, but whole different kinds of people go um, and stay this place. And they're interesting people. Could write a book about those. And But yeah, so one of the things, um, you're just in this space and you're kind of um, soaking it all up. And one of the dreams I had was, um, I had this dream that I was standing in front of a cauldron and it was boiling up. And I looked over into the cauldron and Mr. and Mrs. Borden's heads were floating in the water and they were talking to me, but their skin was coming off their face. Like acid. Oh, it was a bit of melting. Um, and so I thought, and I remember waking up in the dream going, this is to get out of here anyway the, the next morning I woke up and I was doing some research and I was flicking through a folder of old um, newspaper articles and I read this thing where which I don't think I knew at the time but because I couldn't find a murder weapon and they didn't know who had done this they actually decapitated the bodies before they buried them and then they boiled the skin off um, in a in a vat um, and I'm like I am a genius and you didn't know that I didn't that know came that to you in a dream. it did Wow. the magic of houses um, and so yeah so that's all of this kind of dreamlike kind of uh, stuff I like to play with anyway but that's a lot of that made it into the book it sounds almost psychic really doesn't it funny you should say that Kylie <laughs> I was gonna say uh, in before we started Kylie said you know what are some of the uh, different kinds of people that you meet I uh, without fail everyone uh, people ask me after a um a thing are you psychic I'm like no so I must give off give off that vibe, that vibe. yeah well definitely with the dreams yes mm -hmm. anyway <laughs> okay we will move on so that's our first question so <laughs> but it's interesting because when you talk about it I hear that Lizzie was almost like on your shoulder. Yes. Like, and I got the sense of that when you read the book, that oppression and and like like a monkey you couldn't throw off your back. That that was the feeling that I got when That's I read. That's good. That was the feeling you should have gotten. Good. Yes. Yeah. I don't know if anyone else had, had sort of felt that, that, but that, that was certainly, you know, and I'm not any literary genius or critic or anything like that. I can only share my impression of Sarah's book and knowing Sarah. So we would swap stories at work gut ghost stories and we always talk stories. ghosts and murder stories and all sorts of fun sort of things as well so um i knew you yeah. and it was really interesting picking it up the language is really different and you put me into sort of like a crimson peak gothic type sort of scene so do you want to talk about the language that yeah. you used and, and if it was deliberate 
Um, the, the only thing that's deliberate about it is it comes from my head. I know that's kind of how I think mm. um, about this stuff. And so, um, yeah, no one really talks about the writing. They just want to know about the, the murders or other stuff too. But um, yeah, I, the writing, uh, so when I started doing it, so I just, I had Lizzie for such a long time and she almost came fully formed to me. It was, it's very rare that that will happen, that you just have this full person. But I kind of imagined... This, um, because when they talk about the crimes, they always talk about the girls. Well, actually, she was 32 when it happened, and her sister, Emma, was 42 at the time. And they were kind of uh, these unmarried women trapped in, in this house, and so with their very controlling father. And so I kind of imagined Lizzie to be this, uh, I guess, a woman with arrested development in a way. And so she just kind of had this thing and I kind of kept imagining her becoming bigger and bigger and kind of growing out of a house and as if it was a doll house. And so I did want to have this claustrophobic thing. So once I kind of realised um, when I was going through some early early stages of what I was doing with my character, I realised that this was happening and so I, I'm into that stuff anyway and yes. so I just thought I'll, I'll just keep exploring that and then see what happens. And then as I was, uh, you know, bringing in all the other characters, you, I don't know, you have a, a particular way of expressing, you know, their thoughts and feelings and all that kind of stuff. But a lot of, um, like with sentence structure and stuff like I don't know, English um, growing up was one of my favourite subjects, but I was t I'm terrible at grammar and I'm terrible at stuff. So a lot of that is because I can't really talk properly. <laughs> um, sentence or um, using nouns as verbs and, and all that kind yeah. of stuff. And so I'd, um, I don't know, um, it just comes from there. But I yeah. don't, I know I just kind of let a character guide me. And sometimes they speak like this and other times they speak like something else. But a lot of yeah. that language is just how I think yeah. about things. And how you hear it. In your and how I hear it. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so obviously you do make changes to yeah. kind of do it, but then once you realise that you're doing a particular thing, I think you should just kind of floor it and keep going. So um, the repetition of the clock ticking and all that stuff, that's very deliberate, but only after I realised, oh, there's a clock ticking all the time, I wonder what that means. And so you just kind of keep going. And Great, yeah. So do you want to talk about um, how long it took to write the book? Yeah, it took 11 years. I'm not a commitment phobe. Uh, that's so kind of a thing. So I didn't realise it was going to take so long. So when I first started writing the bits, like I still really wanted to write this other novel. Um, and then I just realised I just gave it up because I'm like, this is nothing. And so I just kind of stuck with Lizzie for a while. And um, I think I, I'd always wanted to write, but I didn't, I had no idea how to um, even start a novel. And yeah. so it was a lot of guesswork. Yeah. And then once I... Um, so I just thought, oh, what I'll do is I'll have this tiny book, maybe if it even is a book, and it'll just be one character and we'll do that. And then as I started going, I realised that Lizzie is a difficult person and she was never going to give me a straight answer about everything, which is quite difficult when you're trying to write a book uh, with someone. And so then I started bringing in <clears throat> other elements and so um, to try to help tell the story. And so it was um, so the next character I had was The House, um, it was a narrator. Um, obviously, that has changed as it went on. So I just started um, pulling all these bits of the puzzles together and um, and then I would write a draft and I would read it and I'd go, oh, God, this is so bad. There's something wrong with this. And then I would do another draft and then it just kept going on and on and on and on and on. And then it was my master's book and then I kept doing that and it kept going on. I reckon... So I got up to 10 years writing it and um, I had entered it into things and I just, and I got really close to publication a few times and then it was like a last minute no. I'm like, oh, oh well. And so I just, I thought, oh, I can't stay with this book anymore. But it's been 10 years of my life and nothing's happening. I'll move on and start writing the book that I'm writing now. And then I had this 
fortuitous meeting with somebody um, and then it kind of went so that up to that point I reckon I would have done 20 drafts um, in all of its different things and then when I got um, the publishing contract I, I did a few uh, other drafts after that so it was just 11 years by the time I got to the end and I had to do the final proofs of reading I was crying I was hunched over like I hate this book yeah. I'm not allowed to say that but I just I hated the book so yeah. much because it just it's all I had lived with for such a long time and then it came out and I had to cry then because I'm like oh I can't write it anymore That's so yeah so don't give up <laughs> <laughs> what will happen but anyway that's how long it took all right so why do you write about the things you do well Kylie <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a good question um, there's a lot of reasons why I do um, one want to talk about your next book with that one would you like me to talk about my next book too okay so give a bit of a hint as to what it I just okay. I just remember something about a decomposed <coughs> body in a boot don't give it away okay. <laughs> um, uh, why do I write the things I write I do not write um, joyful um, fun loving books I'm not interested there's a few different reasons why I think one thing that I am I kind of constantly uh, trying to drill down into I think is why people do the things that they do and so I'm, I'm interested, and, and usually for me that uh, involves kind of having to go into some kind of dark place. Um, and I guess without having to kind of get too much into it, I, uh, particularly with uh, my family and places where I grew up, there's a lot of, um, as you grow up, you realise that there's a lot of um, family secrets that no one really talks about until they kind of have to talk about, and sometimes that's uh, very traumatic. Um, and I think being uh, the kind of kid that I was, very curious, I would always um, try to just bleed into the background and just listen to what adults were saying constantly. And, um, you know, you hear dribs and drabs of conversations and as a kid you're always trying to understand what those things mean. And I think also too as a child, I think adults are completely terrifying and frightening and um, the way that they kind of are just there and they're imposing. And so I guess... Um, from, from that kind of thing, I think I've just, I've never really grown out of that kind of feeling. Even now, sometimes adults absolutely terrify me. They're so unpredictable, um, me included. And so I think it's like those kind of things. So I think um, that's kind of where I start liking to get to the threads of things. But so I guess there's that. And I, I kind of, I'm, I'm interested in just in uncovering the things that people don't talk about. And um, I particularly uh, am fascinated with families. Um, and so even with the, so the, the second book that I'm writing at the moment is of a family over, 40, over a 40 year period. And it has proven to be quite upsetting uh, to kind of spend time with this family. But um, I think kind of the main thing, and I've spoken about this maybe once or twice in public, I guess the main thing that I feel like I keep kind of heading towards was a, um, an incident um, that I saw when I was five. I used to live in Nowra in New South Wales and um, I don't remember that place too much except for a few things, this being one of them. So uh, one night my mum had a, a severe asthma attack um, and we had to go to the hospital and um, I have a younger brother, he's two years younger, um, we're quite close and I, we were, so we had to go to the hospital as well and so we were in the emergency room and my brother and I were playing on the floor and having a great time and um, I, I remember my mum was hooked up to all of this stuff and um, a, a nurse came in and she said to my mum and dad, we've got some people coming in. 
we're going to close the curtain and you should put your kids up on the bed and just make sure they stay there. So they kind of did that. And my first thing as a kid, I'm like, what is happening? And so I, I wanted to know. And I could hear some stuff going on behind, behind me, uh, behind the curtain. And so at that exact same time, a doctor came in to check my mum. And I just kind of slid off the bed and onto my stomach. And I just went over to the curtain and I flipped it up and had a look. And right in front of me were two children about the same age as my brother and I in their pyjamas with blood all over them. And I remember thinking, what, what's that? Um, and I, I do remember them just not moving so much. And I was very confused by this. And then behind them uh, was a doctor wheeling in a bed and there was a woman on it. Um, and I've, I, she was just covered in blood. She had, um, like, uh, she'd been cut all over her body and I, she just wasn't moving. And I thought, oh, well, I didn't know whether she was alive or dead, but I had never seen a person look like that before. And then there was a, uh, a police officer um, with the doctor and he said, we have him in the back of the car. He did it in front of the kids. And I just remember thinking, oh, and then I, I put down the curtain and then I hopped back on the bed. And that was it. I just kept that to myself. I didn't talk about that until last year. Um, so I never told my mum and dad because, uh, one, it's pretty traumatic. And also, two, I knew there was a part of me that knew I had done the wrong thing because mum and dad said I, we were told not to go and look and I went and did it. And so I didn't want to get into trouble. Yeah. So there was that. But I, um, that has just stuck with me my entire life. And I, because I never talked about it, I wasn't quite sure that it had really happened. And so sometimes... I would have dreams about it, um, I would, uh, and then I would think, oh no, maybe I made that up, I wasn't quite sure. And then uh, particularly as a teenager, I would um, have these flashes of these things. I'm like, did I make that? I think I made that up. Anyway, last year um, I was talking to my dad and we'd, uh, we happened to be talking about Nara and, I, and then I thought, oh no, I'm going to finally be open and tell my dad what I'd seen. So I asked him. I, and I told him this thing and all he said was, did you see that? And that's when I knew, oh, it was, it was right. I really did see it. And so I feel like now that I'm older and wiser, Kylie, I feel that uh, everything I write about, uh, write about and particularly relationships between men and women and, and families and children and all that kind of stuff keep coming back to this, uh, this very specific moment in my life. Um, that I probably would never get over in, in that way because um, like, it just keeps coming at me. But it also kind of... Because it makes you ask questions like, why would, a, why would a husband do this? Why would a father do this? And what kind of makes those... What are the circumstances that kind of lead to that such violence? Yeah. And so I think my whole entire life... And then you find out bits about your own family. Um, and so I think for me, I keep trying to constantly straddle this sphere of violence and beauty and love and constantly comes together. So that's what drew me to this book. It's what drives me um, to my next book. Um, and I'll talk about that now. And the only thing I kind of say, so uh, while I was trying to have um, a, a child a few years ago, would have all these miscarriages, and I just kind of thought, oh, maybe I won't be a biological mother and that's fine. <laughs> and um, I had, I just had another miscarriage. And I had this dream um, about a woman uh, in a car uh, driving towards the Blue Mountains. And in my dream, I kept seeing her kind of looking into the rearview mirror. And I wondered why she was doing it. And so I looked into the review mirror as well. And behind her, I could see a decomposing baby in the back seat. And I kind of woke up and it was the same guttural feeling that I had when Lizzie came um, that night. 
And so I thought, oh no, oh no, oh no, this is one of those books. I don't want to, I just knew I'd never get rid of her. And so I, I kind of, um, I was still writing this book. And so I thought, oh, come back to me when I'm ready. We'll kind of figure that out. And so not long after that, I um, was pregnant with my daughter and that pregnancy stuck. But I kept thinking about this woman. She had a name and everything. Her name's Eleanor. And I just, um, I kept thinking about her and thinking about her. And so, um, and you know, you kind of ask yourself these questions about, well, what does, what's the significance of decomposing, blah, 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 blah. So you kind of, kind of do that. And I, I started making this tapestry of a family um, that, oh, boy, that's going to give things away. Uh, <laughs> but essentially, um, it's a road trip novel <laughs> with a twist. Um, and that's the kind of thing. So yeah, again, these these uh, echoes just keep kind of coming back. But I am trying to be really uplifting in this new book. But I'm trying. It's my version of uplifting. Check it out anyway. People describe this as a crime novel. Yes. Then they describe it as historical fiction. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes they describe it as a feminist book. What was your intention? Was it any of those three? <laughs> Would it surprise you, Kylie, if I said no? No, it wasn't my intention. I just wanted to write a book. I just, um, I had, the thing with me is I can get a bit lazy even though I keep working on something. And so I, if you've read the book, you might notice that I don't particularly love plot um, and kind of meanders. And so when I first started writing, actually one of the reasons why it took so long to kind of write in the first year and a bit is because I, I thought, oh, it's such a well-known book. Um, story, God, I knew this heat would do this to me. It's such a well-known case. It's like 125 years old. Um, there are plays and ballets and a whole raft of things. So I thought, people know this case inside out. And so I started doing some research. And after a while, I'm just like, this is too big. What have I done? Like, this is too much for me. And so I started writing it and, um, and, and tried to stick all to the facts. And... Um, the book sucked it was so bad like I just I felt stuck every time I went to do it and I'm like I don't feel like this is the book for me so I knew immediately this isn't going to be a hey hey I've solved it kind of a thing so that was out of the, the the um that was out of the picture and then it kept going and then I realized I don't really like I mean I do like crime novels but I don't really I can't plot so that's that's not happening um and also I, I didn't care about the crime I just cared about the family yeah. <clears throat> and so I thought, well, that's not going to be a thing. And then obviously it's set in the past, so immediately you think it's historical fiction, but I don't particularly like historical fiction. I mean, I do read it, um, but it's not, I'm not I, I just, I never thought of these things. And so I think I just tried to write the story that I was, I was, that was coming to me. And so it is an amalgamation of all those things. But <clears throat> I think, you know, we come back to the way that particularly the women in the book are presented like I I do think of women all the time as just being strong people and so I find it kind of interesting that uh, because you have a strong character or several strong female characters that all of a sudden uh, people think oh it's feminist I'm like okay it's obviously I made a few statements about um you know uh oppression and, and all that kind of stuff but I find it interesting that because there are a strong women who actually have agency that that's unusual in some way I'm just like no that's how books should bloody be um and so yeah so I do I mean obviously I do um there are certain things that are deliberate but I never sat there and thought oh it's a crime novel because I think also too when you set something up to be um like a crime novel or something like that people have certain expectations um and I mean none of them um, and so I think people go oh 
um, like I read reviews and um, sometimes my favourite ones are like, this is the worst crime book I ever read. I'm like, good. I wasn't writing one anyway. But um, yeah. <laughs> so there's all these things. But I think for me, I just, the one thing I would say about it is um, I, uh, it's clearly a gothic novel and I, that's my, that's my thing. Mm. So I was very deliberately kind of doing that because um, that's the stuff I grew up on. But yeah. So I'm going to change the pace a bit mm-hmm. and I want you to talk about the mutton stew because that's something that sat with me. Mm-hmm. Tell me. Okay. Were you trying to set up that Lizzie was slowly poisoning them through the stew? That was the question that I had okay. unanswered. Okay. <clears throat> so in real life, um, Mr Borden was very... Uh, so they were quite a rich family in that money. So he, when he died, he was... Uh, he died... I don't know, several million dollars. In today's money, he'd be around between 15 to 20 million dollars. So like, well, not for them. But anyway, he was so tight with his money that he just refused to spend it. So actually, um, there's all these stories that I kind of found of Lizzie being a bit of a kleptomaniac. And so she would steal things um, like fabric and all that kind of stuff. And then her father would find them and then hand it back. To the, the because they were one of the the, uh, the well respected families um, in in Fall River where it takes place and so oh shoot I've lost my train of thought months you right <laughs> so so there's all things so Lizzie's already a bit of a dodgy character in in a way and the other thing that I that people keep talking about is uh, this this disgusting mutton stew on a stovetop that had been um, out. It's debatable how long it was every out day. for. Every day. The impression well, it was out every day. They only had an icebox. So, yeah, um, there's some, and, and, and Mr. Borden refused to get rid of any food. And so Bridget, the maid, poor Bridget, she kind of had to just just reuse whatever she could. And so she had this mutton leg for God knows how long. And it gone to the point where you couldn't really eat it off the bone anymore. So she made this stew. And so I, so some of the things that I read in the court testimony and stuff, they just kept talking about this stew. I think um, I have a thing about food and smells. So I already had that going on. I'm like, what's the most disgusting thing I could do with this mutton? Um, and so I just kept putting it on the stove. And so I, I kept imagining it being reheated and reheated and reheated. So two things are kind of happening in that too. So the day before the murders, Lizzie tried to buy prussic acid and she was refused because she'd already bought some the week before. And you can't have too much of it because people start questioning why do you want why do you want poison? Yeah. And she said she wanted it to um, to clean her seal skin cape. However, the next day, her whole entire family is violently ill except for her because they all ate this mutton stew for breakfast and she didn't. So there is a theory that she had perhaps actually tried to poison them all. And kill them that way. Um, her, but then it didn't work, so she had to get the axe out. But that's that's where that came from. But I think also too, like the mutton stew for me is just a, a nice big disgusting metaphor for what was happening in the house and just this kind of rancid, decaying family that just kind of gone on. And so you just go from there. But that's what the mutton stew means. Also. It's just disgusting, and yeah, like I like to make people feel gross. Because, <laughs> yes. like um, Sarah describes in the book, the vomiting and all that mm-hmm. sort of stuff, and I sort of thought, oh, maybe Lizzie was trying to poison them and it wasn't working quick enough. Yeah. They were vomiting, mm-hmm. but they weren't, and so that's why she took to the axe. So that's why I was, and she was yeah. sort of putting them in a state of that they couldn't fight back. Yes. Oh, actually, uh, a thing I've actually remembered. So a few days to a week before um, 
the murders happened, she actually started going around the neighbourhood, particularly to her, her friend Alice, to go, we are keep getting sick, I think something's wrong, I think someone's out to get us. So she started planting this seed that her father, I mean, he was a bit of an asshole. He did have uh, enemies. Let's put it this way, when he died, no one gave like, like, I mean, they cared, but they're like, oh, well, good riddance. Um, that kind of thing, because he was so mean um, and stuff. And so, but yeah, she started going out and spreading this kind of thing that she feels like the family is under attack. And so, and she even did it the night before the murders happened as well. So she was setting, she was setting something up. Got it. So, yeah. so we've talked about um, Mr. Borden and, mm -hmm. I, and uh, get that sense of oppressive parents, obviously. Yeah. So how does that make you relate to the girls and especially Lizzie? Like, how do you feel? Do you feel any sympathy or any understanding? Do you hate her? Like, how do you feel about her as a, as a character and a person? I hate her. Um, <laughs> she's so horrible. I don't know. But having said that, she's, uh, I would have to say, one of the funnest people I've ever written. She's so, she's terrible. You can make her do whatever you like. Actually, her and Benjamin, as much as um, I find them not my kind of people, they were just the most fun to write. Yeah. But I think it's not too hard to actually try and find sympathy or empathy with uh, people who aren't nice. Um, and I think I, I find that interesting as well. Like you, just because someone, I think you can always find someone's humanity in them and it doesn't mean that you like them at all or, or even condone the actions that they do. But I always try to find their humanity first and I think um, I tried to do that with um, with Lizzie in particular. Yeah, She's so awful, and so I, I did. I kind of um, started thinking, well, you know, what is it like to live in in that family and have a father like that? Um, you know, her um, her biological mother Sarah died when she was so young. Um, and then she got Abby as a stepmother. Now, to her, she's the only mother that she ever knew. But for Emma, who had ten years plus with their real mother. This started building up a lot of tension and it kind of started seeping through um, and through the years of it going on. So you can start, you know, I've not to, not that I've ever had terrible step parents or anything like well, well, maybe one or two. But, um, you know, whenever, like you can totally relate when my, when my dad in particular would have a new partner and you go to meet um meet her um there's always that instantaneous i have to be in my best behavior but also i don't want to be because i want to um just be myself and all that stuff and so you can i just kind of you start bringing in these little threads and um yeah so by the time i kind of build up to the the moment of um of the murder and because you always have to be thinking okay why would someone kill their parents and you just have to keep coming back to that question the, in the entire time and for me the answer was because they didn't know how to love each other anymore yeah. um and so that's the kind of the central uh i guess question that i'm exploring what do you do when a family has imploded and so um <laughs> maybe the logical conclusion isn't axe murderers but I don't know, for this family it was. And I think there's so many things that are going on and I think in, in some ways maybe this is why people also think it could be, you know, the feminist book is that I feel like Lizzie wanted her own freedom and this was for her, if she did it, this was literally the, the only thing she could think of doing. So, yeah. But, I, I mean, I can sympathise, but I don't like her. She's just awful yeah. but also very fun. Yeah. And it's interesting because, again, um, that takes me to you exploring the whole pigeon Thing. Oh yeah, and I suppose uh, to me it was like I could see that you were trying to humanise her mm. in the, in that sort of sense that she's 
evil to her sister. She I mean, the way she treats nothing. Emma, do you want to talk about their relationship? The sibling okay. relationship? <laughs> um, I know sibling relationships are, are endlessly fascinating to me. I, I'm lucky I have a brother who I get along with quite well, but actually... Um, when we were younger, we hated each other. We had this kind of, we call it the winter years, where um, I would walk past my brother and he'd just punch me in the arm all the time and I would turn around and slap him like it was no good. But it comes in, I, I think also too, like, but I, at the same time, well, we were in grade six and year seven, like it was around that kind of time. But, you know, it was one of those things when anyone would ever pick my brother, I'd get, I'd get deeply upset. Because obviously it's my brother, but also to like, I'm the only one allowed to pick on him. You're not allowed to. So there was all that. And so I, when I, um, so when I was thinking about these siblings, I, I just started going back to what I'm, I'm used to. And you can be so, um, I was going to say violently close to a sibling. I guess you can be. And, and so for a really long time, uh, our, my brother and I just became entwined and we did everything together. And um, I loved that, but I also hated that because I felt like I couldn't be on my own and I couldn't be myself and I just had this thing around me all the time. And so it makes you start reading. And so when I was reading uh, about Emma and Lizzie, I didn't actually find too much uh, about them at the time except for there's two little things and I kind of put them in the book. One was Emma, she just stuck by her sister through the whole thing. Um, she defended her until the bitter end. So there was that one thing I thought, that says a lot. Particularly, I think, um, she may have known something was up. Um, so there was that. Um, but then in 1905, uh, Emma just ups and leaves and in real life, and they never speak to each other again until about 1927. I think then they die within a week of each other and they're buried side by side so that was I thought about that I'm like oh god even in death they're still trapped together and then the other thing um, I was reading was their uh, wills and ah oh, this tells you everything you need to know about these so Emma she had kind of said you know I bequeath all this money to blah 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 and then she says but I also leave money um, to my sister should I should I die before her and all that kind of stuff Lizzie, on the other hand, bequeaths all of her money. Then she says in a paragraph, my sister has enough money um, and I leave her nothing. Um, and I just thought, hmm, interesting. And so that's all I kind of needed to know about them. And so I think um, it's, it sounds uh, weird to say, but I kind of started getting the idea and certain things that you read that actually Lizzie may have been Andrew, her father's um, favourite, even though she was a brat and all that stuff. He let her do things that Emma was never allowed to do, like go overseas and, and all that kind of stuff. And yeah. so I just started thinking about this this woman who, when you know, when their mother dies, she has to not only be a sister but a best friend. She has to be a mother as well. And so I feel like they just had each other because they weren't allowed to have anybody else. But that also comes um, with a, a dark side too. And so I was very interested in that. Um, and so, yeah, that was just that made it interesting yeah, and fun to write. Well. And I think I wanted to wring Emma's neck at some stage. Like, I wanted mm. her to slap Lizzie in some yeah. points, you know, but it was like she, you really did get that she was sticking with her yeah. constantly and just that, you know. I hate her, but I love her yes. type, that sort of feeling. I think, um, simply, I think siblings are like that all yeah. the time. And maybe this constant push-pull. Also, too, if you think about it, like, up until this stage, like, every other member of their family, their blood family, is dead. All she has is Lizzie. And I, I, I find, I don't know, I thought Emma was 
maybe um, quite sentimental, but also very duty bound. And so yes. she also promised her mum, I keep forgetting to say this, but um, she also promised her mum, so when her mum died, she promised their mother that she would look after baby Lizzie. And so she made this promise and she kept it until she couldn't keep it anymore. So I think that was another kind of thing. I'm like, I know who this woman is because I probably would do the same as well. Maybe not stand by a murderer so much, but anyway, (laughs) (laughs) to the bitter end, but yeah. So I'm going to change the pace and I'm going to get you to read something from Mm -hmm. your book. So I want you to read a passage and tell me why you picked that passage to read to everybody and what it means to you. Well, maybe we can ask, do you want food and Europe? Do you want, um, maybe we could do food and Europe. We could also do a weird dream. We could maybe do, listen, I'll just do food and Europe because it's short. So uh, in real life, um, Lizzie got to go overseas for like 19 weeks on a grand European tour, but her sister never got to. This caused a lot of friction in the house. And so I kind of... So the, it's hard to describe how the house is, but there's basically, it's a house where there are no hallways. You have to get from one room to another through interconnecting doors. And so there's no privacy really. Um, and so Lizzie and Emma always shared the same kind of space. Right up until Lizzie goes to, uh, to Europe, Emma has this room and then there's like a little cupboard, literally like a closet, and that's where Lizzie would sleep. Um, and then Lizzie goes away and she comes back and then she demands that she gets the bigger room. And so Emma gives it to her and then she sleeps in the closet space. And you've got this kind of weird thing. And so not that that means anything for this passage, but just to give this sense that, um, oh, it kind of does, um, but just this sense that um, while she goes away, she just becomes a bit bigger than herself and she thinks that she is right. Anyway, it's right at the beginning. Um, and then also just, <laughs> I got hungry a lot when I was writing this book. And so whenever there's food, I probably ate afterwards or something. Anyway. Okay. It was only two years years ago that I was on my grand European tour, the freedom I had. Emma wasn't there to tell me how to behave or what to say, and so I got myself for life. On father's insistence, I went with cousins, wardens of blood and of marriage who I barely spoke to back at home, and we set sail, gulped ocean winds, learned how to stand against waves. The things we did. Rome. My Boston-made shoes got stuck in mosaic stone sidewalks, made me stumble, look a fool. I bought new Italian calf leather boots, walked straight lines, walked as a lady should without raising eyebrows. I'd walk, ears full of that fast Italian, made me want to jump into that sing-song, be spoken from one mouth to the other. Everything reminded me of how small Four River was, how big I was finally becoming. Over there, the Spanish steps, covered in blooming lavender and carpet-red-coloured azaleas, men and women climbing to the top, sun-kissed faces, kissed lips, two white and black goats pulling a small grey wooden cart of orange and green vegetables, my cousin and me standing at the base of a marble fountain pointing to a deep Roman red building whispering, John Keats lived inside. Huh, aren't I the cultured one? Over there, men wearing rabbit felt fedoras sat in circles, drinking mud-heavy coffee. Over there, girls dressed in virgin lace communion. Over there, three people reading. Over there, pigeons shaking out wings. How I wanted one to take home. Over there, over there, over there. Eyes widened with all the things I saw. I knew more about the world than Emma did, and that made me happy. 
I sent her postcard after postcard so she wouldn't feel like she was missing out. Gave my love, gave her reason to miss me more. I ate and drank what I wanted in Paris. Butter, duck fat, liver fat, triple cream brie, deep cherry red wines, pear clementine and lavender jelly, creme cakes, caviar, escargot in sauteed pine nuts and garlic butter. I did what the French did, licked my fingers, didn't care if people saw what they, or what they thought. Father would have hated it, would have told me I was uncouth. I ate everything up, ate his money, was delightful everywhere I went. I learned how to wrap my tongue around accented vowels, spoke to this stranger and that. Nobody knew me, didn't expect anything from me. I wanted to stay like that forever. I, the explorer, the strolling I did. One day I saw a woman throw herself into the Seine, swim like a swan under arch white stone bridges under Pont Saint-Michel, the noises she made, an opera. She smiled, floated along, disappeared. I clapped my hands, bravoed the way she had taken charge of herself. If only Emma had been able to see how far a woman could travel if she really put her mind to it, and I put my <coughs> mind to it. It's great to hear somebody read <laughs> their words, you know, because I've really got a sense of Lizzie in that as well and her attitude. Mm. <laughs> She's, it's sass. She's a bit sassy. Exactly. Yeah. So, movie stuff. Yeah. Now, so do you want to talk about that? Because after Sarah wrote this book, um, I believe that they approached you. About they did. So people get excited um, about things. And before the book even kind of came out, I sold uh, the TV rights to a UK company. And I was telling Kylie this. So for a really long time, I was... You never write to think that these things are going to happen, but um, I just want to try this book. But, you know, then these fun things happen. Um, and so this company, um, this, they bought it. And um, I thought, oh, that's nice. It will never get made. Guess what? It's never getting made because I'm buying it. It's coming back to me. Um, they, so a lot goes into bringing something to life. And so they wanted it to be a miniseries. They never quite knew how they were going to tell it and they never could find um, a writer that they wanted um, to, I, I think that didn't happen for them and I think they were like, we've got all of these other projects going, we're not going to renew it. So for a really long time, it was going to be a TV show and then a nemesis happened. So at the same time that I've been writing this book, uh, the actress Chloe Sauvigny, um is also obsessed with Lizzie and she too had been trying to make a movie for 10 years about it. Her book, uh, my book and her movie come out at the same time. Um, and actually when I was um, there, I so I've stayed at the house a few times. One of the weekends I was there, I was there and then the next weekend she was there. And so I feel like um, there's this kind of thing. And so her, that movie came out and I don't know if it got very good reviews and they're like, we're not touching this. And so that's that's it, nothing else is happening. I am not rich, Kylie. <laughs> I know, I'm so upset. <laughs> We're gonna, we've got Sarah's book over there, so you're more than welcome to purchase a copy and she will happily sign it and talk yes. to you one-on-one -on -one for a little bit. And there's some feedback, feedback forms. forms. We'd love to hear what you feel, uh, feel about whether we were um, too crazy, too Can honest. I <laughs> hear something to set the bar for you? So uh, I did an event where there was feedback and um, one of the questions was, was the presenter, i.e. me, engaging? Yes or no? And someone wrote, unusual. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> that feels
filled me with so much hope. Um, and so maybe you too could write your own answer. Thank you. This is embarrassing. Let's forget to say that. That was Sarah Schmidt in conversation with Kylie Carlson. We run regular author talks at all branches of Yarra Libraries, so please keep an eye on our website. For you, we'd recommend Tom Doig interviewing Meg Mundell, who'll be discussing her latest novel, The Trespassers, at Richmond Library next week on Tuesday, September 3rd. If you're keen to read See What I Have Done, or listen to it for that matter, please pop into your local branch or place a reservation online. In the meantime, if you get a bit carried away and reserve all of the new releases at once, Yarra Libraries promises to hand them over with a smile. Except for the new Ben Aranovich. You're going to have to wait till I'm done with that one. Happy reading!